0: This is Dylan Wiseman. Welcome to the Culture, Trade Secrets and Employee Mobility Podcast. I'm here today with Brandon Carr and Tiffany Eng from our San Francisco offices. Welcome, you guys. Thanks, Dylan. Yeah. Uh, we wanted to spend a few minutes talking about, about a recent result that we obtained uh, in the Northern District of California in federal court on behalf of one of our clients uh, in a trade secrets dispute. So, uh, Tiffany, if you could kind of queue up for us. Uh, what the nature of the dispute was.
1: Yes, sure. This is actually, we see it as a partnership dispute, but a plaintiff in this case has filed uh, a claim under the DTSA, the Defend Trade Secrets Act. Uh, Notably, there is no claims under the California Uniform Trade Secrets claim. So this is only based on federal law.
0: Right. And I think that's a real important point for uh, why this case is so novel and uh, in its outcome. So, Tiffany, go ahead, if you could kind of uh, talk about the procedural posture, if you would.
1: Yes. So based on California Civil Procedure Section 2019.210, there is a procedural requirement that a plaintiff needs to adequately describe its trade secret claims. Uh, Otherwise, uh, they will be prevented from conducting discovery. So this uh, provision obviously is based on a California statute. We decided that this should apply in the federal court context as well. So we actually filed a motion for protective order after we received and inadequate trade secrets
0: disclosure. And then, Brandon, once you kind of walk us through what was the first motion that we brought to address this?
2: Yeah, sure. So it was kind of an interesting posture because we filed a motion for protective order originally, um, asking the court to rule that the initial disclosure that plaintiff served was inadequate. Um, it didn't disclose the you know the trade secret with particularity. Um, in accordance with the CCP statute that Tiffany just mentioned. And the judge agreed um, and ordered that an amended uh, trade secret be uh, served. And um, subsequent to the other side serving it, we filed another motion for protective order uh, based on a number of in the uh, amended disclosure. I wanted to kind
0: of talk about initially. So we're in federal court where the federal rules of procedure typically apply. We ask the court to apply some of California's procedure, and uh, there are plenty of cases where that does happen. So in that respect, this case is not new or novel. But we get the court to apply the uh, the California standard. And then in November, the court issued an order that told the uh, the plaintiff, who originally explained to us that this California standard doesn't apply in federal court, uh, the court agreed with us that it does apply, and then also gave him a, another uh, responsibility to not just comply with the California statute, but to also um, identify with more specificity under the federal standard uh, what its trade secrets were. Uh, Tiffany, you can kind of walk us through what the court um, came up with in its um, November
2: order.
1: Yes, um, I do want to note that in the Ninth Circuit, various courts have adopted different approach in applying the California statute in this discovery context, because some courts view it as procedural rule and some courts view it uh, effective in helping the federal courts in managing discovery disputes. In the Northern District, though, courts have consistently applied the California statute in managing its federal trade secret claims.
0: Yeah, so, uh, so the court agreed with us and said, um, let's have the plaintiff comply with the California standard plus this additional federal standard. Uh, Brandon, can you walk us through the additional federal requirements of the The
2: court imposed in November. So yeah, the the November 18th order directed the plaintiff to disclose for each asserted trade secret four items. One, a summary of the specific trade secret. Two, the background of the trade secret and a description of how each trade secret derived independent actual or potential economic value by virtue of not being generally known to the public. Three, a description of how each s- secret has been the subject of reasonable efforts to maintain its secrecy. And finally, four, each of the precise claimed trade secrets numbered with a list of the specific elements for each as claims would appear at the end of a patent.
0: Yeah, so so the court adopted the California standard and then also imposed this additional burden on uh, the plaintiff to come up with those multiple points that they had to then put in their next disclosure. So, uh, Tiffany, what happened after that?
1: So after that, the plaintiff actually filed an amended disclosure, but um, based on our review, the disclosure is still inadequate. So we decided to move for another motion for protective order.
0: Yep. And then uh, so we moved for this was our second motion for protective order. And I was kind of surprised in some respects about what the court told us that it wanted, but what did the court tell us to do after we'd filed our uh, motion, our second motion for protective order?
2: All right, so the court in December of 2020 issued an order on our second motion for protective order and said that it's time for the parties to graduate from T-ball, that the prior order barred discovery until the plaintiff served a satisfactory statement of the asserted trade secrets and if defendants believe that the disclosure was unsatisfactory, they can refuse discovery and move to strike the trade secret claims.
0: All right. So we have this order from the judge saying that if, if they haven't complied, rather than having never ending motions for protective order, he wanted to address the substance of their, uh, their trade secrets claim. So, uh, Tiffany, what happened next?
1: Yes, so after we received this court order, we took the judge's invitation and we decided to file a motion to strike uh, plaintiff's trade secret claims based on an inadequate trade secret disclosure.
0: Yeah, so we brought a motion to dismiss uh, or alternatively to strike and that was uh, considered by the court. And Brandon, can you explain to us the outcome that was the court handed down?
2: Yeah, so the the judge considered our motion and um, decided that motion to strip was appropriate method to dismiss the trade secret claims. And the judge went through um, all of the trade secrets or the alleged trade secrets and determined that only two of them um, were allowed to stand uh, at that time and that we should also bring a summary adjudication motion if warranted to dismiss those two remaining trade secrets.
0: Yeah, so it started out, they had um, 11 trade secrets that they had asserted, uh, nine of which were in the DNA sequencing field. And the court struck all nine of those. And uh, and as well, one of their customer list uh, categories, Uh, and leaving them with these kind of very narrow uh, database uh, claims that are still remaining. So uh, because we're in federal court, the only reason why the federal court has jurisdiction is over the trade secrets. So the court stayed the rest of the case and now has directed us to bring a summary judgment motion, uh, which means we try just the uh, part that gives rise to federal jurisdiction, the trade secrets claim, in, on paper, so that's coming next. Okay, so so Brandon, let's talk a little bit about this—the type of relief that the court granted. Was it a motion to dismiss? Was a motion to strike? Was a little bit of both? How would you characterize this?
2: Yeah, so the judge in this case um, felt that a motion to strike was the appropriate motion to dismiss the trade secrets um, in the complaint, and you know there are a lot of other cases in the context of motions to dismiss. But this judge specifically felt that um, plaintiff tried to reframe this dispute as a motion to dismiss, and that it misread um, the court's previous November 18th order, uh, and that the motion to strike was the appropriate way to get rid of the trade secret um, at issue.
0: Yeah, so the distinction there is that because they didn't comply with his prior order, um, he uh, rightfully viewed that. This as non-compliance with his order and just struck their trade secrets, all of which didn't abide by his prior order. So, I think that's a, the the gist of his ruling. Tiffany, there are some important quotes from the judge about the significance uh, of a trade secrets plaintiff being able to identify it what it claims to have been taken from it or used improperly. Can you give us some guidance from the judge on that matter?
1: Yes, I think the major takeaway from this order that we received is this quote, a true trade secret plaintiff ought to be able to identify upfront and with specificity, the particulars of the trade secrets without any discovery. And that is what plaintiff here failed to do in their disclosures.
0: Yeah, well put. I mean, um, it seemed that at times their trade secrets were shifting sands and uh, we did our best to try to lock them down. You would think if it's your trade secret, you'd be able to describe it, Uh, but that really didn't happen in this case. Um, So I really wanna thank you guys for your time and and efforts and putting into this great result for the client. Um, It's a, uh, I think a very unique result um, first of its kind. I've been doing this for 25 years. And to have a judge uh, under the Defend Trade Secrets Act um, decide that he was going to dismiss the, the plaintiff's claims uh, is uh, shows that there are some real consequences here if you fail to identify the trade secrets with reasonable particularity. So, Uh, With that, I want to thank you guys both for your effort and uh, we'll continue to provide an update of this case as we move forward. Thanks again.